0: Welcome to Geared for Growth. I'm your host, Mike Mortlock, tax depreciation super nerd. And we've got another super nerd in the house who was already on our property investing journey podcast special series. But today we're getting him back for property market research, advanced level stuff. So we're talking to, again, data guru, property market expert, Kent Lardner, about advanced property market research, what he looks to as indicators for property price movements, all the data that's available, and what property investors should really be zeroing in on, getting away from the noise and looking for those key metrics that give them the confidence that they're going to invest in the right suburb. It's an awesome interview again with Kent. Here he is. Kent Lardner, thanks for joining me back on Geared for Growth. Thank you. Now, we had you on a little bit earlier in this series of the property investing journey from start to finish to talk about matching demographics to your property purchase now we want to go a little bit more of a deep dive we're happy to hear your predictions for the future of the property market but we really want to upskill people how to really supercharge their property market research skills now I've witnessed you with your eyes dancing across uh, an Excel spreadsheet and you, you can see things a bit like um, those people that watch that computer screen in the matrix, right? They see all these numbers and they're like, oh gosh, we've got trouble. I'm like, what is that? Was that the four that went past? It's a little bit esoteric, but can mere mortals look at data and, and, and actually find something that says this is a good property market to invest in?
1: Well, what I've done is I've built a website driven off a spreadsheet and the reason why I did that Um, was to visualise stuff. Even fairly powerful, experienced uh, investors couldn't get enough insight from a spreadsheet. So it's a common thing. So what I did is I created heat maps and created visualisations entirely off that same spreadsheet that people were using and complaining that they couldn't understand and converted it into a a website, a product. And by doing that, the insights that I have gotten out of it myself have been phenomenal. So mm-hmm. I think I've gained I've gained more out of putting maps on stuff. I've gained more out of putting creating heat maps and doing ranks and comparisons. So, um, so yeah, there's a lot to be said by looking at maps, looking at heat maps, um, looking at, at charts, and plotting charts underneath one another so you can kind of look at the correlations and time series shifts and trends. In in one in one go. So there's a there's a lot there's a lot to data visualization.
0: There 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 is a certain sea a moving sea of media uh, that's just kind of out there each day competing for clicks and eyeballs, talking about hotspots and booming areas. And then there's also some of the industry players that have got a product to sell, and they're using data to sort of baffle people. You know, like people might be talking about depreciation booms on off the plan things or there might be rent back periods or there might be sort of economic trickery that's really designed only to sell certain products how do we get to these external sources and and find people that can interpret the data that don't have something that's kind of uh, that they're flogging on the side that makes them a bit biased
1: yes um I think it. Uh, they always show their hand at some time as, or some point as to what they're, what they're ultimately selling. I think that's probably the first question. What are you selling? Yep. What? How do you make your money? And that should answer it straight away, right? Mm. Um, whether there's an ulterior motive. Um, so all I can do is talk about me uh, in this regard. And what I do is I was looking to sell a, a subscription product to all this data and mapping and after trying it for a few weeks, I thought, no, 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 this is probably the wrong strategy. I needed to zig when everyone was zagging. So what I did is I effectively said my suburbs are available for sponsorship by buyers agents, and that's how I that's how I make my money. So I think if anyone's got an answer as to okay, you're presenting data, why are you doing it, and how how do you survive, how do you make your money, you need that answer.
0: Mm. So, you make the money because buyers' agents pay to sponsor pages that you're creating, whether they sponsor them or not. The yes. data doesn't change depending on who sponsors them.
1: Correct. Correct. So, um, I think I've you've got no, the test. No, no axe to grind. You know, there will be a scenario where I say a suburb's not performing well and it might upset one of those sponsors. I know that day will come right at the moment. So many markets are strong other than those CBD unit markets. Um, by and large, most of the housing markets all across the country look fantastic. So I haven't got that problem just yet, but I know it will come.
0: I think a clever buyer's agent would, wouldn't necessarily see that as a problem. If people are wanting to buy in that suburb, then it's important that they don't overpay if it's coming back and that investor's got a seven or 10-year mindset anyway.
1: Well, one of the biggest challenge that the buyer's agents have at the moment is and selling agents alike just can't find stock. Mm-hmm. That's the big problem. So, things might change around. Um, maybe a you know, quarter of percent or half a percent interest rate might might fix that.
0: Mm, yes, we'll see. Although the RBA have said they're not chasing house pricing, um, but you know, APRA certainly haven't said that they're not. Now, <laughs> when it comes to data. We're talking a little bit more advanced research where I'm assuming that people understand, you know, yields and, and days on market and vendor discounting and vacancy rates. What do, what do you see as the, the data points that are most of value to property investors?
1: Yeah, I think at a top level there's some things I like. Um, price ranking uh, is an important one. I think looking at the uh, suburb median relative to its peers, So if you take a suburb, take its median, compare that median to all other suburbs in that statistical area three. I like using something called an SA3, which has been created by the ABS. Um, So um, that's. That's the first thing I use. Sorry, I just had to turn off an Adobe update that, that came through as we were um, going together. Just don't you hate when that happens?
0: Ah, every, every day there's some <laughs> yeah. update. They all seem absolutely critical. So no. people talk about ugly duckling suburbs, right, so where there might be a suburb, and I think maybe Blacktown in Sydney was a recent example because that topped the charts for growth for a while, but there might have been suburbs around it that were outperforming. And that was, you know, from a price ranking point of view, it may be pointed to Blacktown as having room to move. Is that what we're talking about there?
1: That's what we're talking about. So it's a, it's, it's a, it's a, I'll pick on a couple of suburbs where I am. We both would be familiar. There's a a suburb called Katara and Katara South, and it just stood out because its peers, the surrounding suburbs were a good 100K plus, 200K plus above it. And that's what this ranking is about. It just tells me a little bit more about the suburbs. So looking at the, if I pull up one of the big real estate portals, terrific. I get to see the median of that suburb. But why is that? How can, how can you make that more valuable? How can you get greater insight from that? Well, compare it to the suburbs around the surrounding suburbs. So I think... That's just one way to get some extra insights. If you kind of take the advanced approach to this, you'd say, well, how is that um, How is that suburb profiling or how does it rank against its, its surrounding suburbs? So, so that's the, probably the first one I'd like to, to call out or do call out. Same for the sale price and equally same for rental price.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And what can often happen, obviously, with, with rentals and then ranking those rents is uh, if, if one suburb gets particularly tight um, it's a very very fluid very quick to react market so yeah you know, people will up and go to the next suburb yep. to find to save that thirty or forty dollars
0: mm, okay so it's so it's pr- rental price ranking
1: as well yeah so sale price ranking rental price ranking I think are, are two really powerful uh, metrics yep um, another one that is the exactly the same principle but this has been done by the Australian Bureau of stats is um, uh, an advantage-disadvantage score, the CIFA index. So it's a socioeconomic advantage score. And it's been around for uh, several years, but it's a terrific way to compare and contrast the uh, the socioeconomics of a, of a region. Uh, and again, you use it in the same way. You look at it from a ranking perspective. Mm-hmm. And, and so, and what,
0: that, what will that tell you? Is it is it weekly household income? Is that the main thing we're talking if, about? Or is it? If you
1: want to go down into the you know, deep into the weeds on it, they, they do give you a really strong, detailed breakdown. Uh, if you look up CIFA index on the ABS, yep. I'll give you the high level view. It really looks at socioeconomic advantage based on factors such as uh, um, education, uh, income, access to stuff. Yep. access to transport, et cetera. So, you know, by and large, the, the usual suspects are, you know, your, your high-income suburbs. Mm-hmm. Uh, but sometimes you'll find little pockets in those suburbs that are interesting as well. The good thing about CIFA, they, they break it down to a, a, a small neighbourhood, uh, an SA1, so you can quickly ascertain whether there's uh, pockets of, of socioeconomic disadvantage. The Give for Growth Property Investing Podcast is presented by our business, MCG
0: Quantity Surveyors. If you're an investor or a property professional looking to get the best tax depreciation deductions for yourself or your clients, please get in touch with us at mcgqs.com.au. It's our mission to help as many property investors as we can to maximise their claims and maximise their property education as well. Okay, so if you are doing a bit of a price ranking thing and you see that there's, there's a suburb in the middle of, of other suburbs that just has a medium price that's a, a lot less, but its advantage score is, is comparable, would that be an indication that it's got room to move?
1: That's that's a good example of it. Um, you know, I I kind of like to look at it as if you're buying the secondhand car, you're you're walking around it and kicking the tires. I do the same thing with a suburb mm. and you look at you know multiple data points. You know, you're not just looking at one metric. Yeah. And it's it's it I think this whole looking at a suburb in comparison to its peers is a is a great thing, especially for the ripple effect. Yeah. You know, what what we're looking why are we doing this? We're looking to see. Are we buying potentially into a market that has lagged? Because what you'll find, you know, generally is regression. You're fitting this trend line to the broader area. Pick on Newcastle, Newcastle, SA3. If one suburb lags, it's only a matter of time where, from a statistical perspective, it's likely to regress back to the average. Mm, it's likely okay. to catch up or catch down. Uh, just that's the way the, the, you know, lines fit the dots, Right. So I think it's an interesting thing to see for suburbs lagging and what's happened in a lot of the um, as a result of a lot of the exodus is the locals have avoided or avoid a suburb but the out of towners don't. Right. That's been that's been a massive thing that I've observed where you know especially buyers agents that I talk to you know they're buying into these suburbs that might be you know the ugly duckling or the poor cousin. Yeah. And that the outer towners are buying into them, and a lot of them are buying in as, as invest- investors, and it's changing things pretty rapidly.
0: Taking the Newcastle area as an example, and maybe you could come up with some um, Sydney, Melbourne, or Brisbane examples. I remember places like. Um, Gateshead and Window, just south of Newcastle, have always had that kind of uh, that stigma to them. That there was a certain amount of, of um, public housing there, and there was kind of an idea that well, you wouldn't you wouldn't go to those places because of that sort of local knowledge slash stigma. Maybe it's more stigma than the knowledge. But how, when you when you look at a suburb that's lagging, you would find suburbs like that that are just a long way behind how, how do you make sure that there's not you know a good reason for that that it's it's always going to stay that way or is your argument no matter what the difference is like it's it's likely to to drag you know it's like to be dragged up by the suburbs around it
1: um it's a it's a, a difficult one to answer because there's so many scenarios it, it might be cheap for a very very good reason and that reason won't change obviously yep. You know, if it's next to the coal loader, yeah. <laughs> you know, the only thing that might change is they get rid of the coal loader and coal disappears. You know, I'm, I'm kind of going to guess that there's going to be quite a few suburbs in and around Newcastle that would really thrive from mm. the, the closure of that that coal loader on on one particular side of the harbour and push everything over to the other side. There could be an immediate impact there. Then there's other suburbs that are um, might be a little bit behind, you know, because of uh, public housing and some stigma there. Uh, equally, it might be because the prices are a bit low because the houses are yet to be renovated. Yeah, right. Yeah. And that's a common one. So then you're, you're really looking for the, the true regentrification.
0: And we talked so, a little bit about demographics impact on that on our um, earlier episode, which I don't have a number for because it's actually yet to be published, but look for, look for Kent's name uh, a couple of episodes back where we talk about that. But are there other data points that we really need to be having a look at um, that give us a broader sense of whether it's likely to be a good property investment? So when we're ranking things side by side, that already demands that we've zeroed in on a suburb to do that comparison. H- how do we find those those that you know those spotlight those suburbs of the you know ten thousand plus around Australia? Is there any one particular thing that you look at first, and then you trickle down like a branch?
1: I um, I like to split the market up by SA3. Yep. Um, there's a lot of uh, unit markets where the S- there's this very, very few units sold in an SA3, so I don't really call them a market. So um, at a very high level here, I'd probably say there's you know, 300 housing markets that, that I would analyse at an SA3 level that have enough houses that make it a, a market worth looking at, um, and probably about half that for units, um, about 150. So by and large, there's um, multiple markets. It's not just one housing market, as as we've both said many a time. And then uh, you'd focus in on that at that regional level. That's what I certainly like to do uh, or recommend doing. And the type of data you would look at at that regional level would be a lot of the the bigger, you know, you can look at the demographic stuff. You can look at income. You look at jobs. You look at all those stuff. Just, just purely to get a handle on, on them and understand the market. Uh, then what you would do is you look at uh, inventory levels and how they have shifted through time for that at that regional level. I think that's a great lead indicator. Uh, looking at vacancy rates and looking at inventory levels, both as uh, both as to where they are today and where they were through time over the last year or two. And I think that gives you a a, a fantastic insight as to the the state of that market, whether that market's starting to potentially heat up or stabilise or or cool down.
0: As an example, when you're looking at those, say, inventory levels, what sort of time period is that good for? So let's say we've seen inventory just tighten over a year. Does that say that it's it's indicating that over the next ten years it's going to be a tight market, or does it have a limitation?
1: It what I've attempted to do is to look at the ideal lag between uh, inventory or a change in inventory and a, and a movement in in price. Mm-hmm. And I find that I've found that the that ultimate lag is about four months. Four months. That's just general. It's a, you know, a lot of these things are general statements, but I found four months is a pretty good fit. And so, what that means, a couple of key things it says uh, if this market changes from a modest or a high level of inventory to a lower level of inventory um, from last month to this month. When is that most likely to have an impact on price? Well, that'll be in four months' time, and there's a bit of common sense in that because it takes time to buy the house and settle it, and for that data to show up. So, I think a lot of that's just in the mechanics or the the, the process of 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 crunching and capturing the data and getting it, getting a house sold. So, inventory level, I think we covered that off. But just just in case, it's you know just a ratio of how many. Uh, properties are selling, and how many, or how many are listed for sale, and how many have sold, and that's counted in months. So, it's the theory is, if there's three months of inventory, if no other property got listed for sale in that area, in three months' time, you'd have nothing left to sell. And I split those up. Typically, above nine months is a strong, strong buyer's market. Below three months is a strong seller's market, with shades of grey in between. Um, And a balanced market usually is that five to seven months mark. Um, Of interest this year, a couple of really interesting learnings um, looking at movements of price and movements of inventory is almost everywhere across the country we've seen inventory levels plummet very, very low. And it's created an interesting scenario where you can observe price movement relative to inventory movement. And not all markets have moved uh, at the same rate, and it's been fascinating. So there's a couple of theories I've got. One of them is that a lot of these markets, you know, that might have only moved only five or six percent, which is still good. Um, a lot of that, those lower price movements, have been uh, markets that I would classify as supply driven. Most most of the inventory ratio has changed because listing volumes went down. Mm-hmm. And then there's other markets where it's both supply and demand driven. And I'll pick, on, I'll pick on one there, you know, Gosford. Gosford's been a classic where inventory levels went down and prices went up and then listings nudged up a bit and it put that theory to the test and inventory continued to go down and prices are still going up. So Gosford's, you know, a good benchmark there. So this year is giving me the ability to start to identify or categorise markets as those that are really sensitive in terms of prices uh, to changes in inventory and those that haven't. Now, will that be forever and ever? No, it won't, but it'll certainly be a nice category that I could use for the next year, I'd say. Mm.
0: And if we're talking about, say, a 10-year time frame, is there much data can can tell us or or is it more getting into economics so you know what's happening at the, at the state government level with infrastructure spending and that sort of thing
1: yeah there's a number of really good white papers written by smarter people and I am on this this front um, university papers that look at long term growth and by and large they they point to the the big stuff supply of of housing stock uh, um, population growth so I would fall back to say it's the big economic stuff that drives the stuff long term. Uh, what's of interest at the moment is if you one of the metrics I like to look at is well, what did a particular market do over the last ten years, or what did what did it do between twenty ten and twenty twenty in that you know, pre COVID era. Um, There were a few bumps and whatever, bumps and bruises in markets through that period. But by and large, it's a a nice little metric to say, what was the average? What was the annual average growth rate of that market or that suburb over that 10-year period? And it's just a nice thing to look at. And suddenly it starts to tell you some things that you... You, you may or may not have known, and then suddenly you realise, well, yeah, units didn't do quite well in that area, mm. and the market still doesn't look good for units. So no matter what we think right here and now, the evidence is that units in that particular market, XYZ, have not had a great long-term growth rate. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, you always like to look at the long-term uh, growth rate and like to look at the long-term drivers of growth but there's a lot of changes in the last couple of years I think COVID's tipped a few um, things on its head in terms of rules and you know trends and long-term averages as well
0: yeah certainly we've seen evidence of that in in the regions it'll be interesting to to see what happens when we go back to to a bit of uh, freedom but Kent thank you for casting the spotlight on property research once again you've given us some some great tips to to sharpen our research pencils and and mine so thank you very much we'll have you back again soon if you wouldn't mind
1: thanks Mike cheers